Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. One of my favorite spots in Israel is the Mount of Beatitudes. It's one of the many hills overlooking the beauty and serenity of the Sea of Galilee. There's a real small octangular church up there, and it's surrounded by lovely gardens with secluded areas for teaching and meditating and praying. And with our busy schedules when we tour, it's one of the few places where we're able to actually slow down to spend one-on-one time with God. But before we go off on our own personal time, we open the Bible together as a group to read the sections of Matthew 5 through 7, known as the Sermon on the Mount, where the Beatitudes were given by Jesus. According to the Gospel of Matthew, this was Jesus' first major recorded sermon to his disciples. It was in this setting that Jesus began to show his followers the importance of having a change of heart, which leads to a change of conduct. The principles in these 111 verses are powerful and life-changing. So for that reason, we're going to spend the next several weeks walking through chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. I'm Debbie Blank. Join me as we sit at Jesus' feet, listening to his teaching and understanding his heart for us. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. What is your definition of happiness? According to Lucy, in that picture where she's hugging Snoopy in the Peanuts comics, happiness is a warm puppy. But if you had to make a list of things that bring happiness, what would you say? The kingdom of this world tries to tell us that happiness is status, money, material possessions, and doing whatever it takes to get ahead. But experience proves that those things don't guarantee happiness at all, but often bring misery instead. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus presents a list of keys to happiness that may be puzzling or even shocking at first, because they're so completely contrary to what the world teaches. But the kingdom of God is completely different than the kingdom of this world, and it's going to make all things new. And in these verses of the Beatitudes, as we call them, they're called blessed rather than happiness, because blessed is the term that describes a spiritual attitude rather than happiness, really, which depends on our circumstances. Now, to understand the background of this sermon, we have to understand what's happening in the background of Israel. The coming of the much-prophesied Messiah came in a way that the religious leaders weren't expecting. They were looking for a king, someone to overcome the Romans, instead of a humble servant. The religious leaders were so focused on working their way to God by following every detail, every jot and tittle, they call it, of the law, at least outwardly, that they ignored the heart of God and his word. That's why Jesus challenged them in Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. That passage tells us that the religious leaders were so intent about following every little thing to the law, down to the point of actually tithing their spices, 
but they were ignoring God's heart and the heart that he wanted them to have. They needed to understand what was said in John 1, 17, which is the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. They weren't looking for a Messiah like that, though. So why the law then, if Jesus was going to change things? According to Galatians 3.19, the law was added because of transgressions until the seed, which is Jesus, would come to whom the promise had been made. The law was then laid out to give the Jews directions in how to live. So when Jesus started teaching his disciples, he needed to refocus their attention away from the hypocrisy of the religious leaders who were following a religion, really, and following this law, and instead move them towards a relationship with God in order to have a change of heart, a change of character, and a change in their conduct. He made that clear to his disciples in Matthew 5.20 when he said, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, the scribes and Pharisees were the religious leaders. How was the everyday man supposed to surpass the righteousness of the religious leaders? Because the religious leaders weren't living according to God's standards. Jesus was going to show these people how to live. So this first sermon, known as the Sermon on the Mount, was designed to lead them to Christ's grace and truth. The religious leaders were so outwardly righteous that they added more than 600 new rules to what God had given them. They got into a religion that was so man-centered, was so self-sufficient, and they needed that self-direction to be turned around to be directed toward God again. That's exactly what Jesus is going to do, starting in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read, starting in verse 1, read through these eight Beatitudes and explain them as to what Jesus was trying to teach them, and then apply it to our own personal lives. It begins by saying, And when he saw the multitude, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So he goes up on this mountain. This large hill is really more of what it is. Again, it's a beautiful setting, very serene. At this location, he would be able to speak to the crowd and have them listen because it was quiet, it was tranquil, and there was plenty of room for everyone to sit around him. It tells us that he sat down. Well, when our pastors preach, they stand up. But back in the olden days in the Jewish culture, whenever a rabbi was ready to preach or say something about God's word, they sat down. When they sat down, it was time to teach. It was time to listen to what he had to say. And it tells us that he's speaking here to his disciples. What's a disciple? According to the Greek, the word is mathetas, and it means to learn. It means a pupil. A disciple endeavors to be like their teacher, to learn everything they have to learn so that they can then go out and do the same thing that the teacher is doing. Luke 6.40 says a pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he's been fully trained will be like his teacher. And that's what God wants for us. That's what a disciple is. So we have to ask ourselves, are we true disciples of Jesus Christ? Do we want to learn from him? Do we want to mimic him? Do we want to follow him? Do we want to teach him with others? These Beatitudes that we're going to study are not just good religious ideas. Jesus is telling his disciples what they must do to have a genuine relationship with God. The ultimate blessing that results from following these Beatitudes are all in the present tense. 
meaning we can experience them now as well as in the future. So we need to pay attention not only to the exhortation, but to the results that we will have. We have been there to the Mount where he gave the Sermon on the Mount, and so it's wonderful to have that reflection and know where that was. But in trying to visualize it, it says he sees the crowds, goes up to the Mount on the top, and he sits down, and then his disciples come to him. So I've often wondered, was he speaking to his disciples, or was he speaking to the crowds, or was it a combination of both? He was speaking to his disciples. That's what the passage says. But if other people came and listened, he wouldn't have asked them to leave. So anyone who wanted to hear his teaching was always welcome. Are you ready now to sit at the feet of Jesus, to listen to what he said, and to do it? Let's begin in verse 2. It says, opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The exhortation is to be poor in spirit. And for those who are, their blessing is they receive the kingdom of heaven. Again, this is present tense, which means that they can experience it now here on earth, having a little slice of heaven, not because the earth is heaven, but because we have Christ as the Lord of our lives. And that makes everything look different here on earth. First of all, the word is blessed. What does blessed mean? In the Greek, the word is makario, and it means fully satisfied. It's a serenity of soul. It's a joy that comes from our salvation. A lot of translations use the word happy. But as I said earlier, happiness is based on our circumstances. This, if you'll notice, is a serenity of soul. It has nothing to do with our circumstances. I love the Hebrew word, which is a shar. What that means is a joy derived from knowing I'm on the right road with God. Think about it. If you're walking with God, there's nothing more joyous. No matter what happens to you, you can look to your Savior and know that he is satisfied with you because you are walking with him and he will guide you through everything you're going through. That's what true blessedness is. And in this case, it's a progression. It's not static. So each attitude or beatitude here builds on the next one so that we can be closer to God. It's good to hear the meaning that comes from the Hebrew because we don't have an English word, it seems like, to really fully encapsulate what that means. Happy isn't strong enough, but blessed is kind of a churchy word for some people. And so we just have to know that there is a deeper meaning to that. The joy derived from knowing I'm on the right road with God. That's what blessedness really means. The first way to have that joy is to be poor in spirit. What it means, it's a helpless person. Generally, when we think of poor, we think of someone who doesn't have money or access to things or abilities, but they can earn them or acquire them somewhere else. In this case, the word poor means that the person doesn't have any ability to provide for their spiritual needs. Poor in spirit is a completely helpless person, recognizing their poverty in their spiritual needs and knowing that there's only one person who can meet them, and that's God. Do you recognize you need God? Do you realize that in this earth, you may have a strengths and abilities and the consciousness to do things and to do even, even properly? But do you recognize spiritually that you can't live this life with a relationship with God until you know that you absolutely need God? You need to turn your life over to God because you cannot get to heaven on your own. 
It has to be through God. So if you are going to be poor in spirit, you must recognize your spiritual poverty and turn to Jesus today. Poor in spirit, that must be a desperate thing to realize that you're poor in spirit, and in a way it is, but it's a really, really good thing. It's that first step toward God when we realize that we aren't everything and we can't do everything, and ultimately we need God. We need a Savior. We need a relationship with Him. That's a wonderful thing. So this is a blessedness, even though it might not sound like it at first. And then we can acquire the kingdom of heaven. Who doesn't want to have that hope and looking towards the future of knowing we'll be with God forever in heaven? But also here on earth, we can have a little slice of heaven because whenever we need God, he's there. We can go to him because we have recognized our poverty. We have turned our lives over to God. And when we turn our lives over to God, the next thing we're told is, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That passage is taken out of context at a lot of funerals because we think of mourning as mourning over death. In this case, it is mourning over death, but it's the death of sin in our lives. What we're doing when we mourn is grieving over the sins that we've committed and seeing a need to repent, to turn and go in an opposite direction because those sins grieve God. It's really an attitude that's derived from understanding who God is and our need for him and having total humility before him recognizing that our sin offends God. And we don't want that to happen when we recognize we need God. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, we're told, the sour that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So when we have a true, genuine mourning, recognizing that we are sinners and that we've offended God, that we must repent in order to show our need for God and turn to him as the only one who can save us from our sins, that's when we find true comfort because that passage tells us that when we mourn, we shall be comforted. And boy, we all want to be comforted in life, but also knowing that God forgives us of our sins and he will continue to love us and he will have a future and a hope for us because we have repented and given our heart to God. He knows our sin. He understands where we are, and we don't have to pretend anything in front of him. We can lay it all out. He already knows, and the comfort is in knowing that he's ready to forgive us immediately. This is what he's been waiting for, and so he's going to welcome you back like a child that he's been waiting for, And so, which is exactly what we are, is to come back to him to be adopted as his children again. It's just a wonderful thing and not a thing to really be mourned over. That's just a step we have to go through. That's right. And then we're told in verse 5, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. The gentle means the meek, the lowly. Really, it's seeing ourselves for who we really are. And in God's eyes, we are meek and lowly. Now, we are his children, but we don't compare to God. So we are meek and lowly. Really, it's power under control. And whose control are we under? We're under God's control because we recognize being poor in spirit that we need God. And we recognize through our mourning that we needed to repent from our sins and turn to God for his lordship. So when we're gentle or meek or lowly, we're accepting all things as coming from God without grumbling. Now that's tough because we grumble about a lot of stuff. 
That's not surprising. If you read the Old Testament, you find out the Jews did the same thing. When they were in their 40 years of wilderness, they grumbled a lot. But someone who is gentle accepts everything, knowing that God's in control. We've made him Lord of our lives. Jesus is our example. He's our source of meekness. He's the one that bestows that meekness on us when we submit to his will. Meekness is just a very good quality of a person to have. And if Jesus had meekness, then meekness is a wonderful thing for us to have, too. Just realizing our position with regard to who God is and who we are. I remember the movie Rudy and the priest saying to Rudy, I've learned two things in life. There is a God and I'm not him. That's what we need to know is that there is a God. And fortunately, he wants us to be his child. So the question is, do we hunger and thirst for him? You see, the next beatitude says in verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Well, you and I can understand that passage because we hunger and thirst for food and drink. Our bodies need that in order to survive. Well, spiritually, we need to hunger and thirst for God and his word in order to spiritually survive. The hungering ones that's constantly and recurrently getting nourishment from God, from his word, with his righteousness. You know, Jesus said in John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. His food, his sustenance, his thirsting and hungering for God. He said, that's my food. I'd rather have that than physical food to do the will of him who sent me. Is that our attitude? Do we get all of our sustenance spiritually from God? Do you really desire every day to be with God in his word? Because if you do, you will be satisfied. That means God will supply every bit of our spiritual food, our hunger and our thirst, our provisions that we have spiritually when we turn to him. When we hunger and we thirst, that becomes a priority. I think of how many times I rummage around the house for something to eat because I'm hungry and it becomes a priority. And I do that before I do something else because I need that to nourish myself to continue on in the day. Just really made me think of how many times in a day I'm hungry or thirsty. How many times in a day am I hungry or thirsty for the word of the Lord? If we don't eat or drink, we will die. If we don't hunger and thirst for God's word, we will die spiritually. We don't want that to happen. The next beatitude in Matthew 5, 7 is, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And isn't it just like God that when we pour out his attributes to others, God pours them out to us. Merciful is feeling compassion for the misery of other people, specifically their sin, because we're talking about spiritual attributes here. Having a heartfelt compassion on those who are sinning and wanting to help them turn to Jesus, taking the heartaches of others and making them our own. Psalm 41.1 says, How blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. When we love Jesus and make him our priority, then we love others and we should have compassion on them. He goes on then to say a similar beatitude to the first one. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, I love the part, they shall see God, because Mm -hmm. nobody has ever seen God face to face. We see him through Jesus Christ. But we're told here that when we follow these attributes, we will see God in eternity, but we'll also see him in our spirit through the Holy Spirit and through Jesus right now. 
So what's a pure in heart? Someone who's continually spiritually clean from the pollution of sin. Understand, the Bible says all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. So we are sinners. But the closer we draw to Jesus, the further away we should be from sin. It should not be master over us anymore. We should have less and less sin in our lives so that we are clean of that pollution. The fewer one becomes, the more one can see God. That's a great attitude to have, but it only comes with following all these other beatitudes in sequence in order to have that humbleness before God to be pure in heart. And if you're having a little trouble seeing him clearly lately, perhaps you need to realize that he's not the one who moved. You probably have moved. Mm. He tells us then that in verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. Peace is Irene in the Greek, and it means absence of strife. Someone who's a peacemaker experiences the peace of God and brings it to others so that there is no strife. That's what God calls us to do as best as we can. We're to be at peace with all men because Jesus was. However, he also stood up against the falsehood, against the religious leaders who were hypocrites. So we need to have wisdom in how we are peacemakers. And then the beatitude that we really don't want to hear <laughs> is the last one. Starting in verse 10, it says, Blessed are those who've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Which one of us wants to be persecuted? Especially persecuted when we do the right things. And yet Jesus told us in John sixteen thirty three. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. So Christ was persecuted. We're going to follow in his footsteps and be persecuted. That we're being persecuted for the name of Jesus so we can rejoice and be glad because we have a reward in heaven for that persecution. Have you been persecuted? Not because of a sin you've committed or something you've done wrong, but because of your relationship with Jesus. One time when that happened to me, I walked out of a situation and I just started laughing. I said, thank you, God, that I have a reward in heaven because of what I just went through in the name of Jesus. So instead of focusing on the bad, I focused on the positive. What a joy it is. Because Jesus tells us in verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Psalm 147.6 says the same thing. The Lord supports the afflicted. He brings down the wicked to the ground. You talked about the progression of these Beatitudes. And so we get to verse 13, the result of this progression. And it says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by man. Tell us a little bit about us being the salt of the earth. Well, consider what salt is. It was several things back then, but even is today. One is it stopped corruption. As being the salt of the earth spiritually, we stopped the corruption and the sin in the world. It's a seasoning. We put it on our food to make it taste better. Well, as we share the love of Christ, hopefully people see a different taste in life. It's a preservative. 
being a Christian preserves this world because as we turn more evil, God is going to bring judgment on it. It's also an antiseptic that heals wounds. And we heal the wounds of the sick and the brokenhearted because salt is a positive influence in this world. If we have positive influence that represents what's good, does our life benefit the world as salt benefits? Because Jesus says now we are the salt of the earth spiritually, not physically. Are we benefiting ourselves and those around us? But you notice there's also a consequence. If the salts become tasteless, it's not good for anything. That doesn't mean that you can lose your salvation. It means that when we are tasteless, we're not able to serve God. We're not able to minister or be a productive, positive influence in our culture. That's what the passage means. I appreciate that explanation because it could look like you could lose your salvation. So it was important to know that that's not what that means. And then the next verse has to do with being the light of the world. And we know that Jesus is the light of the world. But in verse 14, it talks about, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. That really came to life to me when I first went to Israel and looked out my window over the Sea of Galilee, saw all the hills in the background, and I could see these little specks of light miles and miles away up on the hills. You see, when we are the light of Jesus Christ, we can be seen from miles away. People know there's something different about us because, as you said, Jesus is the light of the world. He is now indwelling us. Therefore, we shine. People see that. And we're also told in that verse 15 that you can't put the light of Jesus Christ under a basket. If you do, it's like the salt. It's worthless. Instead, we should be up on a table shining brightly so people can see it. That's why one of my life verses is verse 16 of Matthew 5, where God says, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, I don't want the light to shine on me, focus on me and who I am or what I've done. You'll notice that our light shines so that they may glorify our Father in heaven. When we have the light of Jesus Christ in us, We should be shining brightly. That is God's goal for us and should be our goal too. So that people will want what we have. They'll see something different about us and they'll ask us about us. And they will even come to know Jesus because he is shining his light through us to the world. Have you and do you follow these Beatitudes? Do you have the joy derived from knowing that you're on the right road with God? Whether you're persecuted, whether you're a peacemaker, whether you're free and hard or gentle or any of these things, are you on the right road with God? Have you considered all the benefits that you inherit for being a child of God? They're listed here, just a few of them, but boy, what great benefits they are. And have you and others seen a permanent change in your attitude as you've come to know Jesus where your character has changed, your conduct's changed because you follow Jesus? Those are all consequences, positive ones, of following the Beatitudes that are laid out here. Jesus told their disciples that if they will follow him, their lives will be changed. 
And we know that because our lives have been changed. Has your life changed? Do you want to be a follower of Jesus? Read these Beatitudes again. Commit your life to following them, to turning to Jesus, and he will bless you. Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.